You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Despite other broadcasters withdrawing their labour, well, you don't get away with it that easily with Null and Void. We're here as ever. So despite everything, it's episode 93. As ever, a great range of many different sports are covered. Your contacts with us and a big target for our Get a Grip feature. That is all topped off by our superb guest, Billy Carr, to update you in all matters football. Now, you can't get much better than that, can you? My name's Tony Grundy. And I've been told I've got to be here and that I couldn't walk out in support of Gary. My name's Andy Callahan. <laughs> More of that in a minute. Now, Andy, you, you did a lot of travelling over the weekend and hardly any space for sport in there, from what I could gather. Um. I managed to watch the rugby, which uh, I was... Well, lucky, lucky you. Yeah, I was up in Glasgow for a country music festival, Country on the Clyde, which was two days, uh, sorry, three days, Friday night, Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon of really up-and-coming UK and um, Irish artists in the country scene. Really good couple of days of performances. They finished just in time for us to get over the road into a local hostelry to watch the England game, um, rugby. And you can imagine, with the score being what it was, being in a pub full of gloating Scots wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be at that point. So, But the Guinness was good. Yeah, OK. Now, me, apart from my fitness training, I started on Saturday demossing. And whenever I say demossing, for some reason... It sounds like a semi-religious uh, pact, but it's not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, demossing the first of, of the five lawns we've got here. Now, you and I, Andy, have differing views on this one. I'll speak first. I'll speak first. I have an aversion to champagne socialists. I cannot stand multimillionaires pretending they're down with the masses. I'm all for free speech. But in the world of broadcasting, there are rules and protocols, even at the BBC. I think Gary Lineker overstepped the obvious power he has and used particularly insensitive language to express himself. The number of colleagues slavishly following good old Gary is interesting. I wonder whether any of these people would be supporting their colleagues at the BBC, BBC Local Radio, who are facing big cuts at the moment and can't say anything about that. Free speech? No. And I doubt if they'll be helping them. If you believe you live in a state-controlled media country, well, go try living in Russia. The whole thing, Lineker and the BBC, have made a complete mess of the whole thing. And by the way, I did watch Match of the Day on Saturday for the first time for years. Really good. Um. I will offer the counter of that. I actually do believe that the BBC handled this badly. And according to their own rules, as Greg Dyke, the former director general who wrote those guidelines, said, news and current affairs employees are expected to be impartial, but not the rest. There is a long established precedent in the BBC that is that if you're an entertainment presenter, such as a football presenter, then you are not bound by those same impartiality rules. 
if you start applying the rules of news and current affairs to everybody who works for the BBC, where does it end? And without getting into whataboutery, if you look at things like Alan Sugar, um, Lord Sugar, you know, previous election, you, you do get into that area. I think Gary was, I also agree with, he was actually right in what he said. If you look at the wording and the rhetoric without getting into politics, there are, you know, it's a dangerous area that we're heading into. I think that he, I agree with what he said, and that's as someone who has been a previous Tory voter in the past. Um, but on the other hand, I also agree that it's been handled particularly badly. And I think that discussion on both sides and maybe compromise on both sides, which I'm sure has been reached now with the fact that he's able to come back and present. Why wasn't that conversation had Thursday, Friday last week instead of it being what it was? I think the BBC threw its toys out of the pram um, and basically said, right, if you're if you're not going to present and these aren't, rather than cancel the programme, they did this sort of half-hearted 20 minutes with no commentary, which was also a direct breach of their own guidelines because they have to provide some sort of audio description for visually impaired people. So I think they completely ignored the needs of one particular group um, by throwing their toys out of the pram and saying, well, we're going to show it, we're just going to do 20 minutes and we're going to have no commentary and obviously no punditry because there were no pundits made themselves available for selection. Um, I do think that, you know, it's a, it's a mess. I actually agree with um, the rules as they are that Lineker didn't actually break those as a non-contracted employee, uh, sorry, as a non-employee, but a contractor. But I do think that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there were crowds of football fans stood outside the DG's office this morning singing, you're getting sacked in the morning. And it would be a surprise whether he outlasts Graham Potter at Chelsea. And it will be interesting to see who's the first one to get sacked this week. Graham Potter, Chelsea, or the Director General of the BBC. So I know I know we disagree on this one, and that's fine. I totally respect your um, right to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and me, you as well. I'll tell you what, let's move on, shall we? Yeah. I'll move you. Now, last week, talking about rugby union, with United's defeat at Liverpool, you didn't want to talk. You have to talk about England's performance and your team, Quinns. 50 points against both of them? Come on. Yeah, um, quite simply for both performances, I think embarrassing covers it. England in particular, it was... I think there were two things. I think England had a particularly bad day, but I also think France were particularly good. Yeah. I take nothing away from that French side. That is a French side that is very good, that has been building through the last three years. You know, when they went out in the semi-finals of the World Cup in 2019 to Wales, they already had Sean Edwards signed up for that. Fabien Gaultier was in place in the run-up to that World Cup and working with the existing team. He's taken over, and over the three years, uh, Gaultier and Edwards have completely revolutionised that French side. I think like any good top-of-the-world type team, 
They're also, you know, they've been fortunate to have a very good crop of players. You know, DuPont, Penaud, absolutely brilliant players. In the same way as it pains me to say about Ireland and Johnny Sexton, who I just detest with a passion. Um, it's like a wrinkled crisp packet, as I've said before. Um, you know, that crop of Ireland players have been together for a long time. Andy Farrell has come in and given them some more structure and worked really well with that group. And they had some rocky results in 2020 under um, Andy Farrell. But over the three years, they really built something. And I think they're much, those two sides are much further in their evolution cycle than England and Wales, who've just appointed coaches really, what, two months ago. So, And it shows. But at the same time, it was... There were a lot of stupid errors and mistakes by England. Henry Slade bit in on the first two first two breaks that led to tries, bit in and completely came out of the line and lost his defensive shape. Against France, you can't do that because you leave a hole there, they'll put two or three guys through it. Um, Kyle Sinclair gave away. He lost his head. He got wound up at an early line-out by a little bit of the French player shoving him. Sinclair, when he loses his head, is a complete liability. You talked about Andy Carroll in very uh, derogatory terms a couple of uh, shows ago. Sinclair is very similar once he's lost his head. Very good player, but when he when his head goes, it goes, and he's a, a complete muppet then. And he gave away four quick penalties in quick succession, which turned over England ball, cost us momentum, early doors, trying to get back into the game. And when you go in 29-7 down at halftime, you certainly ain't going to win the game. But there's there's got to be a bit more fight and, you know, show. And I think by the end, there were players out there who it looked to me, I don't know, and I wasn't in the changing room, I wasn't in the huddle, but it looked like they'd given up. And, you know, for to, to have a, a cricket score run up at home in the Six Nations, embarrassing is all I can say about that. Yeah, well, I personally did give up at half-time. I thought it was embarrassing and I didn't want to see any more. So what about the other games? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was three away wins this weekend. So, you know, the last round of games, it was three home wins. Um, Wales um, seemed to put to bed some of their current woes and means they should have avoided the wooden spoon, barring an upset next weekend, Italy against Scotland. Wales beat Italy 29-17. Not a convincing performance, but did enough to win. And, you know, sometimes that's what you've got to do. I know we talked about it, you know, England in Cardiff, and you said, you know, that was very much win ugly. I think Wales did that, but also played some good rugby at times. Again, I've only seen the highlights of that. I was busy listening to a brilliant country artist called Emilia Quinn while that game was going on. So, uh, but I did catch the highlights of it. And then on Sunday, Scotland were right in the hunt at halftime. Ireland had not looked like the number one team in the world in the first half against Scotland, but had somehow managed to go in 8-7 up. Completely different Ireland came out at halftime. I don't know what was in their um, LucasAid bottles at halftime or in their halftime oranges, but uh, yeah, definitely want to get hold of some of that for work this week because from going in 8-7 up at halftime and looking shambles really um then they came out and put in a pretty flawless or dominant second half performance winning the second half 14 nil 
And that then sets them up for a game against England in Dublin on Saturday. So on St. Patrick's Day weekend, you can just imagine what that'll be like. Um, And uh, yeah, if they win that, not only do they get the championship, but they also get the Triple Crown and the Grand Slam. Triple Crown is England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales beating the other four home nations. And the Grand Slam is if you win the lot. So, uh, yeah, Ireland are definitely on course. I, I think it would take a miracle for England to beat Ireland this weekend. And as being a non-believer, I, I, I can't really see many mini- miracles happening. No. <coughs> OK, uh, what about uh, Rugby League? At least Rhino's one for you. Yeah, that was at least one saving grace of the weekend. Um, Sort of in amongst all the rugby-related gloom in Twickenham. Then uh, Rhino's on Friday night beat Wakefield really convincingly uh, 26-0, which now puts Rhino's back into the mix, um, back on course. That's two wins in a row, so starting to climb back up the table. Uh, Warrington kept up their unbeaten start to the season, um, as did Catalan Dragons. So those two sides are looking very convincing. Warrington won away. Close game at Hull Kingston Rovers, which was one of my other teams to watch, won 18-10. And then the Catalans won on Thursday night, so 18-10, against the Pie Eaters, the Wigan Warriors. Mm. Okay, okay. Uh, cricket, well, yeah, Bangladesh three, England nil in the series, and and it uh, today didn't it unceremoniously. Um, England not really chasing a big score and looking odds on for it, and then collapsing apparently. Yeah, they were set. Was it one hundred and fifty eight in their yeah. overs by Bangladesh, and they were. On course, uh, Milan and Butler were batting well, putting on 95 for the second wicket. Then those two got out in quick succession. And it was, uh, as, as the saying goes, good night Vienna from then. England couldn't get up to further than 142, 144. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, T20 game. And, you know, those the momentum can shift so quickly in T20 and with, you know, two wickets in consecutive balls, you know, in the 14th over, six overs to go. And, uh, yeah, 142 for six, England's final score, which was left them 14 short of Bangladesh's. So, uh, yeah, end up, sorry, 16 short. So end up um, complete whitewash in the T20 series, having won the uh, 50 over series. So I think it just shows Matthew Mott has um, got a, there's the makings of a team there in the white ball side, but they do seem to blow a bit hot and cold at the moment. And uh, yeah, I think he's, there's some work to be done before the 50 over World Cup, which I think is in India um, at the end of this year, September, October yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and David Saker uh, has been appointed fast bowling coach for the Ashes and World Cup specifically. That, uh, you know, is that a good appointment? I think so, yeah. I think that the, he's a guy that has got a good track record. He's worked with Australia in the past. Um, also, uh, experience of the county game in England. So, yeah, I think he's someone who's well-respected as a fast bowling coach. Um, 
and you've got to remember the last time England won the Ashes in Australia, um, they were working with an Australian bowling coach, uh, Troy Cooley. So this could be hopefully more of the same. Um, you know, yeah. I take that with an with an Ashes uh, Ashes winner himself, Saker as a coach. Um, and yeah, you know, it'd be good to see him see what he can do. I think the big challenge for England is keeping that bowling unit fit. I think Stokes has said to the powers that be, I, I, I've heard a rumour that he said, give me six fit bowlers, fast bowlers this summer um, or fast medium and, and we can do something. So if you think there's him, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, uh, Joffrey Archer, Mark Woods, um, Stone and also uh, Mahmood and Robinson, if you can yeah. six of those fit and firing, then because the ashes have been condensed this year, um, which I think is a travesty, rather than it being played across the summer, it's really been squeezed into about five, six weeks to make way for the hundred. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that it's going to be intense. I don't think every bowler is going to be able to play every game. And I think that's for both sides. There will need to be some element of rotation. So if we've got six of that eight fit and firing, could be a good thing. Okay. Uh, football, uh, Billy Carr will be along to talk about the men's game. But in the WSL, Women's Super League, Chelsea went top after beating leaders Manchester United 1-0. And Arsenal closed the gap, uh, beating Reading. So six points separate the top four. So that's Chelsea at the top, United second, City third, Arsenal fourth. Watch this space. Actually, related to uh, the Women's Super League, the Lionesses' great success that we all know about from Wembley. At that time, they wrote to uh, the then PM, Liz Truss. Seems a while ago, doesn't it? Let's not get political, though. <laughs> to ask for a minimum of two hours PE for all girls at every school each week which seems pathetically low. But anyway, they did. Anyway, this week, the latest PM, Rishi Sunak, unless you know something different, has agreed to funding of 600 million over two academic years across all schools to achieve this minimum of two hours per week. Beth Mead, Jill Scott and Ellen White were at Downing Street to hear the great news. The Lionesses were determined that their World Cup win will create a lasting legacy for girls' sport. Yet again, well done, Lionesses. Next on my list, I've got tennis, and Cameron Norrie is, is doing very well at the moment, currently world number 12, continued his recent good form by moving swiftly into the third round of the Indiana Wells tournament. Interestingly, four Brits men are still in the draw. So again, as we often do say, Watch this space. Now, hurling, Andy, I don't think I've ever said that to you before. No, it's a sport that uh, we've not covered, a new sport for us. I caught some of it at the weekend, the um, hurling in Ireland, which is a a brutal sport. You basically give 15 guys on each side a hard wooden stick and a hard ball and let them whack uh, seven bells out of what look like the ball and each other. Um, but was engrossed by it. So um, it was a bottom-of-the-table battle in West Belfast 
with Antrim beating Leash 318 to 118 um, as the scoring goes. So for the uninitiated, as I was up until Sunday, um, you have what looked like rugby posts, but with then a football goal with a net at the bottom of the posts. Um, and if the ball is hit into the net, that's three points. And then if it's hit over the sticks, like a conversion or a Salah penalty, that's one point. Um, so, uh, and But it's read out as the number of goals and then the number of individual points. So 318 would be three goals and 18 through the sticks. So that would overall be 27 points. So, but it's never done just as points because that would be far too easy for the uninitiated. But yeah, Antrim and Leash were basically fighting two of them and whoever lost was going to be condemned to a bottom of the table playoff next month, I think it is, to preserve their um, Division One top flight status. So it was a really hard fought game. The end total, and apologies to any of our Irish listeners on here, would be converted to 27 points to 21 in favour of the home team, Antrim. But Leash now will end up playing, they think, Westmeath to try and preserve their Division One status. But really interesting game. I mean, Leash had a two-point lead going in at halftime, but it had a really strong wind. As they would say in that part of the world, it was blowing a hoolie um, behind them. But Antrim came out in the second half playing with the wind, but it had dropped but still turned it round for what, in essence, became a six-point win. So they have definitely preserved their Division One status with Leash, the visitors, now being condemned to a playoff to try and stay up in the division. But, yeah, I'm, I'm hooked. I want to see more hurling now. Right. Well, first ever report on hurling and null and void. You heard it first here. And clearly you're going to hear some more. Like it or not, you're going to. Uh, now, golf. I got that next. The Players' Championship in the States was won by Scotty Shiver. Um, and he's now world number one. Um, the surprise was perhaps that the people talked about the lack of atmosphere at the championship, this being one of the first tournaments where LIV players were actually banned rather than discouraged they were banned. I guess we're going to have to get used to this. Interestingly, the Masters in early April, both sets of players come together from PGA and LIV. Should be interesting, eh? <laughs> yeah, we'll watch this place. Another one. Netball. Um, give you a quick update. The Super League is, I think, isn't it six week now? Um, and Surrey Storm are top with 18 points, whilst Loughborough, Lightning, London Pulse and Manchester Thunder all on 13 points. And all of those teams at weekend won. So it's pretty tight stuff at the top end of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I got athletics next. Um, headlines focused on a three-year suspension for the top British high jump coach. That's Fayaz Fuzz is his nickname, Khan. He denied the charges of bullying and harassment, but admitted bullying by some of his athletes. Not quite sure how that all worked out, but the inquiry has taken time to, to get this resolved. The suspension, therefore, part of it is retrospective from 21, and that takes him through to 2024. 
not a good image for British athletics. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Dick Fosbury of Fosbury Flop fame died at 76. Um, he, he, you know, at the time that happened, the Fosbury Flop, um, lots of people were kind of deriding him in the first place because he was going over backwards and, and people say, you can't do that. And it, there was nothing illegal in it. And ironically, what happened is people said, hang on a minute, this guy's good. We like this. And everybody copied him. So uh, sometimes it's very difficult to go against uh, the general trend. And he did. So uh, well done. Yeah, I think um, the article I read about him a few years ago now, talking about him revolutionising the high jump, and it, this trap line at the bottom was the first man to ever become a success by being a flop. So uh... absolutely, but I do remember the impact of that at that time, you know, and 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 some people were most uncomplimentary in the first place about him because it it wasn't the norm. So taking on so many people in the way he did and sticking with it because he said I taught my body to do it and it got results. It certainly did. So uh, R.I.P. Dick Fosbury. Now. Um, next up for me, I've got contacts. We've got three actually for you. Um, and they're all very, very nice, very positive. Nobody's having a go. Um, Peter Wilkinson, in response to the note I attached to my elite group when I sent out the podcast, I said, Country 38 Israel has joined the Null and Void Club. Peter says, well done, a brilliant achievement. Cheers, Peter. Uh, and, and you could actually say, only null and void can bring Saudi Arabia and Israel to exactly the same table at the same time. That's the nice thing about what we do with sports. It brings so many different people together. That's that the night. power we have and the influence we have, Tony. Yeah, yeah. It's almost on a level with Gary Lineker. But now, Simon Booker, a top wildlife photographer and a friend of mine, uh, listened to the podcast. I think he was away skiing at the time. But he... Um, he said, Tony, um, good, good, Tony, he says, uh, a, a, a very good summary of everything, which is what we hope to do. Cheers, Bookerman, as I call him. That's very nice of you. Drop us a line. Sam Miller says, your in-depth knowledge of the game and indeed other sports is immense. Blimey. I believe that is what is appealing about your podcast. Once you're hooked in to you and Andy, because your knowledge you have continues to flow and flow and flow. Well done, says Sam. Cheers, Sam. Many Great. thanks for your kind comments. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah, thanks to all three uh, correspondents. Some uh, some nice comments there. We'll put them up on the uh, on the brag board. Yeah, we, we we like it. We don't mind if you have a go, but, you know, those are nice comments. And uh, as ever, you know, unsolicited. So that's really nice. Really nice. Um, okay, uh, get a grip next. Now, on this one, I, for some time, have followed a series of articles that David Walsh, a top Sunday Times sports journalist, has written. His subject this time, his subject this time, is Siobhan Cattigan, the 26-year-old Scottish international rugby player who tragically died, they believe, a lot of people, as a result of the brain injuries received whilst playing for Scotland. 
Walsh has a habit of picking a subject and then not letting go. Walsh just can't understand how it's got to the point it has, where on Saturday, ahead of the Scotland game, 15 months after Siobhan's death, the RSU allowed the family to hear the, the round of applause for their daughter. But it was actually done 10 minutes before the teams came out. And, and they, the family asked to be down on the pitch at the time. And they refused that. So the family didn't attend at all. The RSU did not go to see their player in the three months after the injury, knowing she was very ill before her eventual death. Her actual coach for that Scottish team didn't attend her funeral. The hurt to Siobhan's family is immense. Regardless of any legalities, the SRU have reacted appallingly to their family. In fact, it was only a few weeks before she finally died. Her dad was asking, pleading the RSU if they would send her for a brain scan. They turned that down. Walsh thinks that was on a cost basis. So, RSU, from null and void, a clear message. Get a very big grip. You're a disgrace. The one thing I would say is that could be a saving grace for the SRU here, and I think it is abysmal the way they have treated the Catagam family and also the fact, the way they handled this weekend and Sunday in particular. The one saving grace for them is that the Women's Six Nations starts in two weeks' time. It starts the weekend after the uh, men's tournament has finished. So it could be that they could do something at pitch level there. It wouldn't be the same, and it wouldn't have the same number of, and again, no disrespect to the women's game, it is growing, but it doesn't quite have the same crowds at the minute as the men's game. Um, but if they can do that and get the coverage, there could be something there, which I think would be, uh, you know, would be relevant to the team Siobhan played in as well as it being the Scottish women's team. But I think that, yeah, overall, the way it's been handled has been very, very bad. I mean, let's look at it. The the whole, I don't think any of the governing bodies in rugby are covering themselves in much glory at the moment. I'm actually, at the, this week, partaking I've been invited by the RFU to be on the consultation panel that are looking at the implementation of the change in the tackle laws. Oh, yeah. I was an advocate for no change, but if you've got to have the change, it's better to be, um, to use the polite terminology around this, better to be inside the tent weeing out than outside the tent weeing in. Yes. Uh, so I think from that perspective, I've been involved in a lot of discussions about that this week and I've had homework to do and all sorts of different things. And they're now talking about um, red zones and amber zones in the tackle area and almost what they're saying it would be a belly high tackle, which would be anything below the sternum is then sort of a, a good tackle. Round about the sternum is where it would be penalty. Anything above the sternum then becomes not just a penalty, but a sanction, either a yellow or a red card. But yeah, you know, certainly there's a lot that the game needs to do, as we've talked about, around the head injuries. Um, I think the game is better now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago in the men's game and maybe five years ago in the women's game because there's such a plethora 
of information and analysis being done, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. Anyway, I think we've said enough on that and we'll lift the tone a little bit, a lot, I hope. We've got Billy, haven't we? We have indeed, yes. So um, as the, I guess that if it was a 400 metre relay, the, the teams in the Premier League would be handing the bat on to the last runner at this stage of the season with, is it 10, 11 games to go? So uh, Billy's coming in to give us a bit of a, an update on where he sees things going at the top and at the bottom. Um, we'll also have a chat about the sack race and whether the director general of the BBC or Graham Potter is going to be the first one to go. And uh, uh, yeah, and we'll go from there. Or could it even be, <laughs> you said, Tony, Rishi Sudak, you know, I mean, you know, as we go to the air, he's the prime minister. Who knows what will happen by Thursday? So uh, uh, no, that's very controversial and political, Andy. So we'll, we'll move on. Billy, how are you doing, <laughs> mate? Joy, you're joining us. Nice to see you. Um, well, thank you. How are you guys? All good. Thanks. Yeah, so, yeah, all good. So um, Tony and I have had a, a an on air spat. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I'm going to stir the pot and ask you what your thoughts were on the whole Lineker BBC match of a thing. On the weekend, but very briefly, because we've already had a long and okay. argument on it. Very briefly, okay. Um, I side with Team Gary. I think on this one, it and I think and I think the the sort of response that it got from his colleagues, sort of, I think was the most telling thing. I think no one was willing to sort of step into his shoes and take an opportunity. And I think probably because they wouldn't want the the treatment that he had um and that sort of spoke a lot to me so so yeah i'll leave it there but yeah that brief enough <laughs> yeah it's it's, stuff. It's, that is brief enough shut up <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a, a a two versus one vote and in in a democratic society full of free speech don't i think that means that uh the motion is carried for a team gary <laughs> yeah yeah right okay let's talk seriously now um I, when we look at this season, Billy, has it been ruined by the World Cup interruption? Because we were kind of going down that route ahead of that happening. How do you feel now as you look back on that? Oh, I think in, in football, memories are often very short. Um, and it does feel like quite a long time ago now, that World Cup. And I think the season now looks like it's set up for a hell of a finish at both ends. Um, both ends are looking very detached from each other. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to make for, for quite the finish. Um, there's going to be a, a bit of a tussle for the, the title. It seems a bit of a tussle for those European places. And a, it seems like an almighty tussle for um, steering clear of those bottom three places. Um, so yeah, on all fronts, I think we're in for a, a, a really <laughs> big finish, despite um, that break potentially derailing things. I mean, it has derailed some teams and it's made some teams stronger, but um, but we are where we are and it's going to be a great finish by the look of things. Which of the teams do you think it's made stronger and which are the ones that you think it has derailed, Bill? Um, teams that I think it's made... You know what? I don't think it's made loads of teams stronger, but I would say that in particular, Brighton seem to have come back from it really well. Um, I think having a World Cup winner within their ranks really kind of has inspired a lot of the team there. And they, they've they really sort of, I wouldn't say they've kicked on because they were going really well before, um, but they've sort of maintained 
Um, I think Aston Villa have come back. They were sort of languishing a bit. They've come back. Their new managers almost had a mini pre-season and they've pulled away from that sort of bottom half of the table. Um, those two seem like the ones that have sort of maybe profited, if anyone has. Um, the ones that feel derailed to me are definitely Crystal Palace, who I'm really starting to worry about, um, despite the fact that they're still 12th at the moment. But they are 12th and only three points off the bottom three. So, um, so yeah, I worry for them. Um, I also worry um, for um, Leicester as well. They sort of just started to pick up a little bit of steam. Maybe not steam, they, they just won a couple of games and all of a sudden they seem a little bit under it again. Um, so, yeah. But this is this so tight down there, as I just referenced, like all the way up to 12th, it's only, you know, three points. So it really is going to be a, a titanic tussle down there. That's so mad, yeah. At the top end, Billy, um, mm-hmm. it looks obviously clearly Arsenal City. Mm-hmm. Who, who do you think of those two? What's your, what's your betting as we sit here today with 11 games to go or whatever it is? I have obviously said City from the very beginning. And as I sit here today, I'm still staying with them. Really? Um, but I am rapidly running out of reasons why. Um, <laughs> uh, every I obviously said, you know, I, I didn't expect Arsenal would actually bring in players in January. I thought they would eventually get priced out, and they did. They got priced out of Madrid. They got priced out of Caicedo. But they very cleverly bought players that were within their price range, and they've both come in and absolutely smashed it, um, which I kind of wasn't expecting. And they've, I mean, their best, their, potentially who you would say was their best player before the World Cup is now back, and they're still five points clear, which is ominous. Um, yeah, I think the, what about the? I've got two more reasons why I still think City will be. Um, will just about pit them. One, that they've got to play each other again and Man City did um, do a really good job on them at the Emirates. And the other thing is that Arsenal have still got to go to Anfield and we know how hard that can be. Um, and I'm saying no more than that on this podcast, Tony, I promise. Um, yeah, but good, good. Carry we on. Know how tough, we do know how tough that can be. And yeah, that's that's all I've got now. Um, Arsenal will just seemingly continue to prove people wrong and every time someone says you know all oh, this looks like a sticky game potentially they go and win it or this looks like a sticky situation they somehow find a way to win um so, i'm yeah, gonna I'm go where you were prepared to go bill and i'm yeah. gonna say i can think of seven reasons why it's difficult to go to Anfield. <laughs> <laughs> only only seven why the number seven Andy? yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, we've done all, we've done all that now talking about <laughs> liverpool because they went from beating United, losing at Bournemouth. Um, they're a strange old team these days. Can they actually do deliver fourth place? Do you think they can do that? Um, I think they can, but I only think they can because of the inconsistency of the teams that are competing for that fourth place. Yeah. Spurs look completely up and down, and I actually think they're in danger of sort of their season ending earlier than it should. Obviously, going out of the Champions League, it looks like the manager's on the way out as well. Um, and I think, yeah, they're they're in sort of danger of getting to the beach too early and potentially falling away. And obviously, Newcastle being the other team in there, they 
they've just started to stutter a little bit and it looks like they're struggling for goals. Admittedly, they played really well at the weekend and a striker that they signed early in the season has been injured, scored a really good goal. So they could turn it around, but I I still think Liverpool have a big chance because of those two teams not having the consistency. I mean, I, I would say eight games for Newcastle without a win before they stopped the rock. Yeah. One win over Wolves. And it, it was a scrappy one and, and lucky that Pope wasn't again sent. He really got away with that. So that wasn't just a stutter. That was a Gareth Gates style. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 we were talking about it yesterday, Andy, and I, I cannot believe he wasn't sent off. Andy hadn't seen it at that time. But that was a... Well, it was a fact, you know, it, it was a penalty and it was mm-hmm. a sending off and a four game ban, exactly the same as Casemiro, mm-hmm. who incidentally should have been sent off for his tackle. But, you know, I, I, I watched that and I watched that and thought, I just can't get my head around that. So there was yeah. luck attached to it. But sometimes when your luck changes, that lifts everybody. And Newcastle Very certainly true. needed that, didn't they? They really did. They really did. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not too sure what their running looks like. Um, but they really do yeah. need to, to find some goals from somewhere. Um, and a lot of teams are in that boat, to be honest, at the moment. Do you see really either in the chase for top six, so Champions League and Europa League places, or again at the bottom, any teams making, if you like, a late run on the rails that will either get them out of trouble or take them into the European places? Um, I can. I mean, I'm still, I still like the look of Brighton and Brentford. Um, Brentford have obviously been on a pretty good run um, recently, uh, and I do, I do think they could push themselves into there. That they do seem to just draw too many games. If they can turn those into wins, um, then I could definitely see them potentially taking a, a Europa League spot. And again, Brighton, who I think do look so good and have some really, really talented players. I still think they could put definitely push uh, for sixth, um, getting ahead of Newcastle or Liverpool potentially, um, depending on how things go. But like I said, it could be so interchangeable. And I think th- there will be a team within there that sort of manages to win maybe three on the bounce or something, and all of a sudden they're right where they want to be. So, Okay, so yeah. now here's a challenge. Call the three to be relegated. Oh, it's just... Impossible. Um, the, I mean, the, the amount of times I thought someone has been dead and buried this year and all of a sudden they're not is insane. Like, I thought Everton were dead and buried and all of a sudden they looked semi-solid. I thought Nottingham Forest were dead and buried. They won a few games um, and really like games they that you're amazed they managed to win. Um, and they're sort of up and out of it again. And, I mean, I say up and out of it. They're in 14th, but they're they're not out of it at all because like no one is. Um, but yeah, I I still think, and I said this earlier in the season, I think the promoted teams will struggle. Um, so I do think I do think Forest and Bournemouth are two of the three, potentially. Um, and the one I really worry for is West Ham, because I think. I think that if they were going to change the manager, it's probably too late now. Um, 
and I think they probably should have, but they they almost fell foul of like every time it looked like he had one more game, they won it. Um, and I think, yeah, I think they're in a bit of a hole and I don't see much fight from them either. Um, and they've got the added distraction of being in a European competition. Yeah, uh, the conference. I mean, you could have this ironic, mm. ironic situation where they're relegated yeah. and they win a European trophy. The and end up in the Europa League next season. So, <laughs> so I, mean, I think there are Europa League rules that mean they couldn't take that place because it has to mm. be patient from. Is that, is that right? I, I think there think, is something around that. Don't yeah. quote me on that, but I think there is because the, there was talk when it was. The Middlesbrough Leicester Cup final years ago, there was talk that could they be the team that won the cup and then got relegated, mm. wouldn't have been able to take their European place the next season. The only right. thing I'd say with that is I think UEFA put a lot of value on their competition winners. So if they actually win the Europa Conference, I don't know what that does, but that would be insane if they did go down and end up in the Europa League at the same time. That, and that, but yeah, like I say, that to me feels like a, an extra distraction that could that could mean they're really looking over their shoulder. Um, so go on, there's three. And I, I, I have no confidence in it whatsoever. Leeds are the other ones that I, almost the other way, you were saying there were some that looked dead and buried and then mm. of, you know, rallied or... Mm. A, Rumours of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Almost leads. It seems to me that every time they look like they're getting clear of that relegation yeah. zone, they then lose a couple of games. They change, <laughs> their manager. You know, they change their manager more often than I change my socks. Yeah. Uh, as a result, you know, they're still right down there at the bottom. Yeah. It surprises me because earlier on in the season, they look to be pulling clear of that zone. So, as you say, it's going to be one hell of a bun fight in the last games of the season all right now champions league what's your betting on that and thinking um i watched bayern munich do a very good job on psg the other week and yeah, i did that, as well and that really sort of made me think like okay that's a bit of a team um draw permitting i can only really see that them and real madrid playing in the final to be honest um, as a as a person that's a big fan of the Premier League, I'd love one of them to get there. Uh, you can't see you can't see City. I mean, I think Guardiola is saying a whole a whole reason for being is to win Europe. I can't. I, I, I for some reason I don't think City are as good as they've been for the last two years. Like they're stuttering to where they are at the moment. Not they're not stuttering, but they're not. They're not winning games like they have been in the last few seasons. Um, and and I do think part of that is they've lost some really like decent squad players. A couple of them to Arsenal, a couple of them seem to have fallen out with the manager. Um, and I do think they're just not as strong as they have been. So uh, as much as I'd kind of like to see it, because I like seeing the English teams go well and it keeps us all interested and whatnot, um, I, just don't, I don't see it this year. Um, I'd love to be proven wrong, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Guardiola is interesting. We talked about him a number of times, but this week he's had a go at De Bruyne. Mm, yeah, and exactly. said, you know, you, you know, you give the ball away far too often. You 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 complicate things far too much. This mm. is a world class player who is probably their top player at this stage. Um, so 
it's an interesting motivational skill he's trying to apply that. I, I find him very odd sometimes. It's almost like if he's really talking up a player, it's likely they're going to be leaving to somehow. And yeah. if he's onto a player, he probably really likes them and just want like wants the best for them. I've seen I I feel like that happens quite a bit. Like when um like the whole when Sergio Aguero was like in and out of the team, and then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, I love him, he's the best ever. And then that was because he was leaving. And it's I can't work him out sometimes. He's um, no, I, yeah. I think he's a complicated guy, but I was just thinking on the receiving end of that, how does De Bruyne mm. feel? Because he's gone public with that. Yeah, you know, it's not a private conversation, is it, by any means? No. Okay, so Champ- Champions League, we said Bayern, Real Madrid, Europa. I mean, United, Arsenal, Roma, Juventus. Not uh, a bad lineup. Not a bad lineup at all. I actually really fancy Man United for it, though. Um, okay. I really fancy Manchester United for that. I think they've got a, they've proven already that they've got a bit of a cup team potentially. Um, and if they are, they just, see, a couple of weeks ago, I genuinely was thinking United actually have a shot at this title. Like, they're close yeah. enough. They're within striking distance. And they've just had a couple of bad results. Um, and I think a little refocus from them onto that tournament, I can really see it happening for them. Um, yeah. And like on their day, they can beat, I think, absolutely anyone. Uh, have proven that this season, to be honest. They've really like... Had, they've had the better of, um, you know, Liverpool in the in the home game, beat Manchester City, yeah. had a, beat Arsenal earlier in the season. Like, I think it is, it's within them. It is definitely within them. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to pump up your tyres a bit here, Billy, because we had a WhatsApp conversation um, after the defeat at Liverpool and you said what will be really interesting and what to look for. And I Tony said the same last week, is what's what's the reaction going to be and how are they going to react? And they then came out and really showed it against, was it Betis, Real Betis? Real Betis, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then I think, you know, again, <clears throat> then maybe a bit of a, a stutter at the weekend, but certainly then you see the flip side, Liverpool suddenly thinking that they're, you know, cock of the walk and all their fans um, about how they're now going to win the league and everything. And then they get brought back down to earth with a bump, and obviously the uh, the Madrid uh, cup tie as well. So I think you're right. I think you know you you've certainly said it, and I think United have got that to focus on now. I think you know the challenge for them is can they really maintain that run for a Champions League spot and do justice to the Europa League campaign? But I think they've got the players to do both. No, okay. Now we talked about managers briefly. <clears throat> Who, who's going to be manager of the season? Oh, I, I think it has to be Mikel Arteta. To be honest, um, I, I think, obviously, they're top of the table. It's a very easy call, but I think the jump between where they were last season and where they are now is incredible. Um, and I always like I always like to I always end up finding a team within a season that I just enjoy watching the most. And for me, it's been them this season. They're just so exciting. That attacking sort of four is is just exceptional. Um, and yeah, I, I think the way he's got them playing and the way they've managed sort of losing their best player. Um, 
when and the, the amount of times people have sort of said to them you know bigger tests will come and and this and that and they've just kept going and I just think uh, as much as he was sort of ridiculed a little bit through the Amazon documentary and all that stuff he's he's definitely doing something right um so yeah I think it has to be I think, I think it's going to have to be him and I think also aren't those awards voted for like they've already happened haven't they the vote so I think it probably has to probably has to be him <laughs> so so golden boot oh there's only one man for the golden boot he's it it's it speaks volumes that um Harland is like Seemingly, people have gone a bit cold on him. I, I play a bit of uh, play like the fantasy league stuff, and there seems to be like things like, "Oh, is now the time to drop him? Is now the time to drop him?" Because he seems to be not quite on form, and he's still scoring like a goal every seventy minutes or something, and that's like him out of form. It's ridiculous. He's he's still he's got twenty eight goals in twenty seven in twenty seven club games, and I don't even think he's played all the games. That's just. There's been 27 games and he's got 28 goals. It's it's just insane. Um, whether he's good and good enough, uh, good for Man City as the team or not, I'm still not entirely sure. As I say, I think they're a little bit weaker than they have been in previous seasons. But he's he's unstoppable in terms of goals, and I just can't see anyone catch him. Okay, the last thing on my list, Billy, is international break. Um, mm-hmm. What what's your thinking in terms of where we are with England? Are you? Happy. Uh, I'm always happy. Uh, <laughs> I am always happy. Um, I I'm kind of excited to see um, England with a with a really fit and firing Marcus Rashford. I have to say, um, yeah. I think I think Rashford and Saka have been two, if not the two best players in the Premier League this year. Two of the top five, without a doubt. Um, and if and obviously they play on opposite sides of the pitch. I mean, those two either side of Harry Kane is ex- like mouthwatering for me. Um, so it, I, I'd be really excited to see that. Whether or not that will um, it will translate is a, is another matter. But that that really does excite me. Um, yeah, and let's let's see where we go with that. Um, obviously, having. Chelsea having Reese James and Ben Chilwell back has seemed to spark something out of them. And I hope they both end up in that England squad as well and, and can produce something there as well. So yeah, I mean it's a weird time for an international break. As you say, like we're rounding the round in the bend here into the home home stretch. And you know, international breaks another thing, another another stall in the season. But um but yeah, it's exciting as an England fan for sure. See where where we go next. Be positive. It might all come together. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> on, on that on that note, on that note, Billy, thank you very much for joining us again uh, for tonight's episode. And we'll see how some of those predictions pan out, of course. Uh, I've written them down. Yeah, for no other reason than to nail you to the post next time I speak to you. <laughs> but anyway, thank you again for your input. That's always very valuable to us. Thanks, guys. Cheltenham, Thanks, there, Cheltenham races. Thank you, Billy. Um, Cheltenham races. Uh, this uh, four days, isn't it? They just started today. So, yep. Andy, have you got your predictions there? Which uh, mean, I think the health warning should be: please avoid these horses. They will not win because Andy's going to bet on them. Well, I'm going to um, hold my counsel here um, because I've been. <laughs> 
opinion no, <laughs> opinions are dangerous things in sports punditry. Um, but the bookies' favourites, the Cheltenham Gold Cup, is the highlight of the week on Friday. It will be St Patrick's Day as well, so going to be an um, amazing day for everyone at Cheltenham. I, I dread to think how many pints of Guinness will be sold and consumed. But the bookies' favourite at the moment for the Gold Cup is a uh, Galapin de Champ. Um, the other two that are well in with a shout as well are Brave Man's Game and Aplutard, which is a horse that I've won large amounts of money on in the past couple of years. So uh, those are the three that the bookies are saying in that order are the three bookies' favourites for the Gold Cup, which is the big one um, on Friday. So I would encourage, even if you're not a horse racing fan, it is well worth a watch for the atmosphere and the uh, the events as a sort of an, an event and a sporting event. So if, if you're a sports fan and you like really big crowd atmospheres, then have a watch of the Gold Cup on Friday afternoon because it doesn't get much bigger than that in sports racing. Okay, well, thanks, uh, Andy, and thanks, Billy. And that brings us toward the end of this podcast and as usual, contact details at the end. Make sure you're with us next week. We're delighted to hear from you on those contacts. Keep them coming, particularly when you say nice things. We love that. But even if you disagree with what we said tonight, and there's plenty to have a disagreement with, um, let us know. See you later. Bye. Cheerio, folks. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.